This morning, our scripture is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. All right, Trinity, good morning. Really good to see you. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time, we've really, we're really glad that you made it. It's a beautiful morning, a lot better than these, uh, you know, minus 17 Sunday mornings we've had the last few weeks, so thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, and can we give a round of applause to Lauren and Jackson for leading us this morning? Thank you so much. You guys are the best. And if you were serving behind the scenes this morning, thank you so much. We appreciate you. All right, this morning we are continuing our study in the New Testament book of Ephesians, and we're calling this study God's Masterpiece. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's masterpiece created in Him to do good works which God planned for us to do. Now, if you ask the regular average person on the street, what is God's masterpiece? They may not say the church, but the New Testament does. We are God's masterpiece, His strange, fumbling, sometimes frustrating masterpiece. That's us, the church. And what we've seen throughout Ephesians, the the writer, the Apostle Paul, speaking the words of God, he's showing us that there is a a whole gospel, which is preached to, to whole persons for the whole church, for the renewal of the whole world. It's this comprehensive vision. It's a vision of cosmic redemption, all things coming underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that means that there is nothing in all of creation that goes untouched by this gospel. No, no area of our lives, of our communities, of our societies that are untouched by the power of the gospel. Now, this morning at the end of Ephesians 2, the the text that we just heard, we're going to be looking at the biblical teaching on race, on reconciliation, on injustice, on uh, oneness in Christ. Now, this is a, this is a hard conversation. It's, it's been a hard conversation for many, many years in America, but especially in the last, I would say, six or seven years, this is especially a difficult conversation to have. 
I want to suggest that it's actually good that it's a hard conversation. It should be a hard conversation. In a a society, and a culture like ours with what's going on in the country that we live in, this should be a hard conversation. And so what I want to lead us in this morning is what does the Bible have to say about race, about ethnicity, about justice, about oppression, about reconciliation, about unity in Christ? In this passage that we're looking at, it is, it is the text on this whole topic. And in all of the scriptures, this is the number one best place you can go to learn the biblical teaching on, on race and on reconciliation. And so before we get into the text, I want to, I want to pause. We're going to pray and, and acknowledge our need for knowledge, acknowledge our need for God's wisdom, our need for soft hearts on a complex topic. So let's pray together. Father God, you are the creator of all people, the creator of all that is good and true and beautiful. Father, we know that you are a speaking God, and so speak to us through your word and through your spirit this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, you came into a world of brokenness and division and conflict, and you gave your own life so that we might have life, that we might become one new humanity. Holy Spirit of God, you fill our hearts and our, our minds with your very presence. And so would you do that even now? Give us an extra measure of your spirit that we might understand your word, that we might apply it to the, the, the places of our lives where it needs to be applied. Holy Spirit, we know that you never divide, you only unite. And so would you bring us unity along your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so three things we are going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the wall of hostility, the solution of the gospel, and the hope of community. So the wall of hostility, solution of the gospel, and the hope of community. Here's the first thing, the wall of hostility. It begins in verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth... At one time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And so Paul writes by by addressing the Gentiles, but remember that he is is addressing Jews as well. And if we just backed up a couple verses in chapter 2, we've heard him say that both Jews and Gentiles are dead in sin apart from Christ. Looking ahead just a few verses in 14, it says, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed this barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He'll go on to say his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and to put to death their hostility. So we, we hear it a couple of times in this passage that there is a dividing wall of hostility that existed in the early church. And this wall was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the, the native ethnic Israelites and the Gentiles are essentially everybody who is not a Jew and Israelite by birth. So all non-Jews, that's the Gentiles. For the Gentiles, Paul is writing to them and saying, remember that you were not born into the promises of God, so therefore live humbly within the new people of God. At the same time, he's writing to the, to the Jews and saying, remember that you rejected the promises of God, so therefore live humbly 
among the new people of God. It's really the same message to both groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now, this was the issue for the early church. This was the key struggle that was going on in the lives of the believers and the local churches in the first century. For, for thousands of years, the Jews had been told their whole identity as a people was to be distinct from the nations. They weren't to, you know, intermingle. They weren't to intermarry. They weren't to, to even get along with other nations. They were to live distinct and separate from them. And yet at the same time, the Old Testament is full of these promises that Israel would be a blessing to all nations. And so for their whole lives, they have been taught to live separate. And then the Gentiles, on the other hand, they have been excluded from this group, and yet they're coming as, as they're hearing the gospel and hearing the good news of forgiveness in Christ. They're coming into these churches, and you could imagine that there's some tension now. These two groups that previously had zero interaction whatsoever. I mean, the only times that Jews and Gentiles would get together in the past was like for war. And now all of a sudden they're in the same congregations. They're getting to know one another. They're, they're gathering around the same dinner tables. Their kids are playing together. And as Paul puts it, there is a dividing wall of hostility that remains. Now, there's not a one-to-one comparison between the, the ethnic division that existed in Ephesians 2 and the early churches and the ethnic division that exists in our country today. They're, they're not directly synonymous, you know. I mean, the Jews and, and Gentiles in this context, they were... They were all Central Asians. I mean, to us, they kind of looked all the same, you know, darker skin, darker hair, darker eyes, you know, um, which, and you're, you know, your storybook Bibles have been lying to you. They weren't yellow. They weren't white. There's no blue hair. There's no, you know, long, flowy brown hair with a neatly trimmed beard on Jesus. No, they, they seem similar, but these ethnic groups were so distinct. And yet at the same time, Ephesians is what's called a circular letter, meaning that it was meant for a, a particular group of churches in Ephesus, but it was also meant to be circulated all around the New Testament world, that all the churches, regardless of where they were, were to read it and apply it. And so by extension, this is a letter and a teaching that's for us today. Paul was writing to the Ephesians, but he was also writing to us. Now, before I get in too far, I want to define a few terms as I'm using them. Now, race. Race is the first term. Race is a social category for understanding a group of people. But biblically speaking, there is only one race, humanity, mankind, God's creation. There is only one race. And so when, when we speak of race or when people speak of race, especially in, in really broad categories like black or brown or white, that is, that is an unbiblical or at least a non-biblical category because there is only one race. Now, ethnicity, on the other hand, the second term, that's a distinct group of individuals and families that are connected by a shared identity, culture, language, could be skin color, could be geography. And ethnicity, you do see all across the scriptures. You see peoples and tribes and, and nations. And that the word there is ethnos. And, and the Bible is very pro-ethnicity in that it, it values and honors all the different cultures that come up in the scriptures. And that brings us to the, a question, why would we even use the word race? For many years, I, I completely avoided using the word race because it's really non-biblical. It's, it's not a biblical concept. In fact, race was only created as a means of, of really, what's the word I'm looking for? Creating a distinction between people 
And really, it came in the early slavery movement of the United States. So it was a way of rationalizing this unjust institution. That was the whole creation of race. There was an entire books on this. And yet at the same time, I've been really encouraged by many of my particularly African-American friends not to throw out the term race, even though it's not really a biblical concept, because if incredible injustices exist along racial lines, it's going to be really hard to push back that injustice without using the category of race. And so that's how I'm going to use it this morning, that even though it is, you know, people might call it a social construct, it's, it's not biological, you know, it's, it's man-made, we really can't address fundamental problems in our society without understanding race. The third term is racism. Racism simply defined as any system of oppression that's based on race. Racism is a, is a broad category. It, it could include individual racial hate, individual prejudice and, and uh, sin against other people, or it could be more impersonal. It could be systemic. Systemic racism is disparities in education, housing, income, representation between groups of people. And so race, ethnicity, racism... These are terms that we hear a lot in our world, and we need to understand them from a biblical lens, from a biblical and a Christian perspective. But even before we look at Paul's solution to the racial hostility, I think we we have to honor the passage and pause and ask the question, where does racial hostility exist in our own world? You know, this sermon might be a little bit different because this passage is a little bit different in Ephesians. Sometimes we move really slow, kind of line by line, looking at key words and phrases, because that's what Paul intended for us to do. And yet I think if we did that and just did kind of Greek analysis of each individual word, we could really miss what Paul wants us to see and apply from this passage. And so the question is, where does racial hostility exist in our world? There was a book that came out 20 years ago. Two sociologists, um, university professors, uh, wrote it called Divided by Faith, Race and Religion in America. And even though it's more than 20 years old now, I want to suggest that this is the most important book in, in kind of contemporary circles for understanding race in the church, especially. It's, it's written primarily to white evangelicals to understand what's going on in the world. Now, this book, Divided by Faith, it it makes a bold statement. There's thousands of interviews, you know, a decade of research that went into this. It's It's a profound, you know, detailed sociological study. And here's the conclusion. They say that evangelicals desire to end racial division and inequality and attempt to think and act accordingly. But in the process, they are likely to do more harm and to perpetuate the racial divide than they do to tear it down. Does that make sense? I mean, it's like an entire book in one sentence. What they're saying is that white evangelicals in particular don't, don't want to be racist, they don't support racism, and yet so many of the activities of white evangelicals actually uphold a system of racism that they're supposed to be opposed to in theory. Now, I think this is a helpful distinction, and I think 
that it's right on because I don't think most white evangelicals want to be racist. That, that might be a, something that you see in the media. You might have that projected on you if you're a white person. I don't think many white evangelicals are directly and personally racist. And yet at the same time, I think if you look at the history of the white church throughout the last four centuries in our country, there has not been a significant difference in how they have addressed race than the way that the world has addressed race. And so as a, as a result, white evangelicals in particular have helped to, to uphold and to sustain systemic injustices in our country. They go on to say the ways in which culture, values, and norms, organizational features that are quintessentially American, despite having many positive qualities, they're paradoxically having negative effects on race relations. And so maybe a few examples. What does this look like in America? What does our dividing wall or, or walls of hostility look like today? Well, I want you to think about it first in a general sense, in, in the world before we look at it in the church. You know, I don't think there are any people in America, or at least very few people, thankfully, in America, that would suggest that we return to a pre-civil rights era or that we revert back to Jim Crow laws, which were the sort of the separate but not so equal laws that existed in the past. Very few people want a return to legalized segregation. And yet at the same time, if you look at how white Americans and, and black Americans in one instance, how do they actually relate to one another? It's very, very similar to the way it was more than 60 years ago. So in other words, none of us want to return to a legalized segregation, and yet if you look at the way our lives exist, there's a voluntary segregation that looks identical to what was happening before the civil rights movement. We don't think that there should be separate bathrooms. We shouldn't seat people in the back of buses or in balconies. We shouldn't have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, white schools and black schools. And yet at the same time, voluntary segregation is the norm in our communities. Now, the problem is not just segregation, it's privilege and disadvantage, especially in this instance between white Americans and black Americans. Majority white neighborhoods have held home values better than majority black neighborhoods. Majority white schools tend to receive better national rankings, receive more funding. Whites significantly earn more than blacks when all the other factors are the same. And the income doesn't even really do it justice, but the, the amount of wealth that's held in white versus black families because of you know, generational inheritance and stuff, the, the difference is absolutely staggering. Now, this goes far beyond African Americans, of course. There is systemic racism against Hispanics, Middle Easterners, Native Americans. Many, many cultures face incredible challenges in our own society. It's so strange. I don't know if you've thought about it, but even in the last 100 years, I mean, there was a period where Italian Americans were the most disdained and disadvantaged or almost the most disadvantaged group in America. Later, at other times, it was the Irish or maybe the Russians or Jews. And yet now they're just kind of considered all white. I don't know who makes these decisions or, or how this happens, but this idea of race and justice, it shifts in every different generation. But there's always racial hostility in the world. 
Now think about racial hostility in the church. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that Sunday at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour of the week in America. Now he said that more than 60 years ago. Is it, is it still true? And for the most part, it is. It's getting a little bit better if you look at statistics on multi-ethnic churches, which is any church that has you know, no more than 80% of one ethnic group. Those churches have, have slowly creeped upward in terms of their prevalence in our communities. But for the most part, Sundays are just as segregated as they were 60, 200, 400 years ago in our country. I remember some years ago, two, three, four years ago, I was in New York City for a, a pastor's cohort with our church network. And uh, we were sitting around in my, my friend John's apartment in Manhattan, and uh, we were just sitting around the table. Everything was over, so we were just chatting. And somebody asked my friend Jamal, like, hey, you already have your doctorate already. What was your, what was your emphasis? What did you study? And he said, well, I have a doctor of ministry in black church leadership. And the guy said, see, that's what I don't get. Why would there even be a black church at all? We shouldn't have black churches. And so Jamal very carefully and and lovingly described to him the history of the African-American church in the U.S. That black Americans were, were removed from churches and congregations or made to sit in separate areas. And so just to be able to worship freely, blacks had to create their own churches but then those churches couldn't participate in the denomination, so they had to create their own denominations, had to create their own seminaries, all the structures of church they had to create basically without funding. And so many years later, uh, many whites are saying, okay, now let's bring people into our congregations and feel a little bit better about ourselves. There shouldn't be a black church. There shouldn't be Chinese churches. There shouldn't be Spanish-speaking churches. And so my, my friend Jamal was, was so careful and loving and describing this history. And, and this demonstrates something that all the, the surveys and reach, research shows, which is that in general, white people tend to not even think that they have a culture. Right? So, so in the mind of a white person, there's, there's black culture, there's Asian culture, there's Native American culture. But, but white culture is just kind of normal, you know? I've seen that so often in my own life. That's been the default pattern of mine for so, so long. And that's one of the definitions of privilege that you don't have to think about race and culture because you've been in a position of power and advantage for so long. Now, again, I don't think anybody here, especially not here, wakes up in the morning trying to figure out how to oppress other people or uphold unjust systems. But remember Ephesians 2 from a couple weeks ago. Sin is not always intentional. Sin can be the the omission of doing the right thing. Sin can be uh, impersonal. It can be systemic. I I quoted the theologian Richard Loveless, and I'll do it again. He writes, We can be moral and respectable while at the same time be involved in societies which are oppressing others by pursuing our own self-interest. There is a corporate guilt we bear because of our participation in crooked systems, though our own lives may be straight by ordinary standards, unless the Holy Spirit breaks through our conventional behavior. With the conviction that we are involved in things that are opposed to God's kingdom, we will inevitably continue sleepwalking in sin. Now, are we doing okay? You guys need a water or anything? You're like, I should have brought a protein bar or like a muffin. I don't know. 
These are hard things to hear. It's a, it's a hard reality to confront, especially if you are white like me. Now, what does Paul say to us? If we're willing to look at the, the very real dividing walls of hostility that exist in our own context, what is Paul's solution? What is the solution of the gospel? That's the second thing. See, in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the, the power of God, the invisible power of God, would become visible to the world. And then in chapter 2, he describes two main ways that that happens. First is by people who are dead in sin becoming alive in Christ, salvation. And then the second half, our passage of chapter 2, shows that people who would ordinarily never get along in the world are suddenly now getting along in the church. That's the invisible power of God being made visible. Verse 13, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. You know, in life, most of our relationships, most of our social bonds, they're, they're held together by things that we have in common. You know, our, our families, we have a, a shared DNA, we have shared history. Our, our friendships are typically aligned by things that we, we like to do together, like to talk about together, our interests and our hobbies and things like that. And, and the type of connection is what determines how strong the relationship is, how long that it lasts. And so, for example, in my, my cycling group, like if my cycling got, group got really dramatic and like needy, man, I'm out. Like I'm just going to bike on my own. I can, you know, I'll be fine. But when, when my own family becomes dramatic and, and needy and difficult, I'm going to stick with it, right? Because that bond is, is so much stronger than just a hobby. We have a shared history and a shared DNA. What Paul is saying here is that all people in Christ, regardless of your background, your ethnic makeup, your skin color, anything else, we are now joined together by the strongest possible bond, the blood of Jesus. We are one with Christ, which makes us one with one another, and that is the strongest bond in the entire universe. And so what, what unites us now is far greater than what divides us. What unites us, the bond that we have, can never be broken. We are in Christ together. I love that picture of one new humanity. I think of like when two rivers come together. They don't. You never hear of a river that's like, the Missouri-Mississippi, because they've come together now. No, it's one new river. The characteristics of each river now combine into something that's not just a mixture of the two, it's something completely unique and new. We are one new humanity. We are a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-generational, multi-denominational family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. We are all adopted into his family, not by natural birthright, not because we deserved it, but we have all been graciously adopted into the same family and the same Holy Spirit fills us one and all. 
What we have in common is so much greater than what divides us. And it's only Christianity. I mean, Christianity is the most diverse religion, like, and it's not even close across the globe. And that's because only Christianity has internal resources inherent to its main teaching that bring about a diversity of people. One historian has said only Christianity provides a transcendent narrative for why racial justice is important. And so what is that transcendent narrative? Well, simply, and I'll move through it quickly, but in the beginning, God created one mankind in his image. So whether you're female or male, regardless of your ethnic, you know, ethnicity, regardless of your personality, you are made in the image of God. And it takes all of us together, every group, every gender, each personality style, all the complexity of human life just to begin to reflect the image of God. Now, in, in Genesis 11, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, mankind is united in rebellion against God, and so he comes down and he confuses their language. He, he turns them into distinct tribes with their own languages. They, they can't get along, you know? And so it's almost like in the beginning, in Genesis 11, God creates this racial division, but it's literally the very next verse, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, where God comes to the man Abram and says, I'm going to do something new. Where mankind is now divided along all these different lines, he, God promises Abraham, I'm going to make one new nation. You will be my chosen people, and all nations will be blessed through you. Now, if we fast forward thousands of years to Jesus and his earthly life and ministry, he demonstrates the very heart of God. He not only ministers and prioritizes those on, on the margins of Jewish society, but he goes beyond the margins, beyond the walls, to prioritize those who have been separated or treated like outcasts. He shows compassion to the Samaritan woman. He, he shows healing and salvation to the Roman centurion. And fast forward to the early church, we see Jesus' earliest followers continuing this theme of, of tearing down walls between people, prioritizing reconciliation. In Acts 8, the apostles take the gospel to the Samaritans. Later in the chapter, it's an Ethiopian that, that uh, comes to faith, is baptized, and then takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. Acts 10, Peter shares the gospel with an Italian soldier and his whole household is saved. And he says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. In Acts 11, the gospel is spreading into all the different nations around the Mediterranean. By Acts 13, the church in Antioch has elders from Jewish, African, and Greek Backgrounds. It's the first truly multi-ethnic, multinational church. We look ahead even beyond our own position in the church to the end of all things, the new creation. Revelation gives us a picture of every tongue, tribe, and nation bowing before the Lord. See, maintaining ethnic backgrounds, maintaining what makes them distinct, and yet one before Christ in worship of Him alone for all eternity. 
This is one new humanity, one new kingdom. When heaven and earth meet, this is what happens. See, the gospel is the good news that life with God is available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this comes totally by grace. That's the gospel. And it is within this very core message of Christianity that we are compelled to love one another regardless of our background, regardless of of any other social factor. Only the gospel can bring about the solution to the problems in our world. Now, that doesn't just mean, you know, just preach the gospel and everything will, will work out, but instead it means only the gospel can bring about the first and most lasting change. Tim Keller, a pastor and writer, has said that the gospel goes after the heart. While the world can say racism is a terrible thing and and try to educate people's minds until racism is, is gone, it will always come back because it's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. The gospel, he says, restructures your identity. It destroys comparison because we all stand equally as sinners and equally as children of God. Only the power of the gospel is strong enough to break the power of racial injustices, of the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I suspect, knowing this church pretty well, that every single one of you wants to see this happen, wants to experience the fullness of one new humanity, to to experience the fullness of unity and justice in our lifetimes, in our churches and communities. And so how does it happen The gospel is a solution, but what is God's plan? And that's the third thing, the hope of community. I mean, it's right here in this passage. Verse 19, Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, speaking to everyone, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The dividing wall of hostility is brought down by the power of the gospel and in the context of church community. And this image of of a wall coming down, it's intentional. Walls are divided to keep people in one place and not in another place to divide people. And it's in the moment of Christ's death that the the wall, the, the curtain that is in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Israel, that it's torn in two. And first and foremost, that means that we now have access to God the Father. But we can't say that just that, that inner wall comes down, but then leave up all the other walls in the temple which were designed to keep certain people out. Paul is saying every single wall of hostility has now come down. He's saying there's no stranger, there, there is no foreigner, there are no outsiders in the kingdom of God. We are brothers and sisters. And while the old temple was was the physical place of God's presence, it is no more, but rather the new temple is the church. We are the place of God's presence. We are the new temple, the new Israel, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. But notice that Paul says in Christ we are being built together. 
Did you catch that? He's not saying we, we are already there. We are this beautiful building. He says we are being built together. He's describing a, a process. I think that is so profound that this, this takes work, this takes time, this takes energy, just like any building would. We are being built together. You know, my friend Jamal could have just rolled his eyes at that question earlier and said, man, I just don't want to get into it. I, I just don't have the energy tonight. But he didn't because he, he cared about his brother in Christ. He, he took the time and energy to, to lovingly redirect him to the biblical teaching on justice and reconciliation. As a result, the temple is a little bit stronger, a little bit more unified, a little bit more centered on the cornerstone. And so what does this process look like? What does is, what is a, a movement towards oneness in Christ look like? How do we experience practically what we already are theologically or in Christ? How do we become what we are? I've got a, a little graphic for you, and this is called The Ark of Biblical Justice. It comes from a historian named Jamar Tisby. I know you're blown away by these things. It's beautiful. Somebody in the back, thank you. No, calm down. It's brilliant. No, settle down, guys. It's just a little graphic, I know. Jamar Tisby shows us this graphic, awareness, relationship, and commitment. And it takes these three things coming together to promote justice in our world. Now, awareness, this is the the mind of justice that we have to learn. We have to learn from the scriptures. We have to learn history. We have to learn about our culture. We have to learn things and understand what is actually happening before true justice can be promoted. You have to explore your own story of interacting with race. You have to listen carefully to other people, people who are unlike you. And so Pastor Casey and I are going to be posting some resources that we've found really helpful on this. It'll probably go out in in the weekly email next Friday. But awareness is the first step. Now, a note here for the parents, this is not just about learning, but it's also about teaching. If you're a parent teaching your kids about race, teaching them the biblical vision of race, justice, and reconciliation is one of the most important things you can do. Jesse and I often try to sit down with our kids when, when something happens, whether it's in our, our front yard or, or at school, as it often does, some kind of, of interaction where race comes to the forefront. Certainly whenever there's a, a shooting or something that happens that's in the news, we don't want our kids to hear about it at school. We want them to hear about it from us. As we share some of these things with them, we don't show them videos, but we describe what happens, and you can like see tears in their eyes, and they're like, why in the world would that ever happen? Like, buddy, there is so much sin and brokenness in the world. There is so much brokenness in each one of us. We want you to know what's going on in the world because you are going to be part of bringing it back together. And so awareness comes first. That's the mind. Relationships is second. This is sort of the, the heart if there's one sure way to, to uproot inadvertent racism in particular in our own lives, it's through relationships. It's through having people in your life that are different from you that can share with you their own experiences. And so this doesn't mean try to find like a single friend from each culture that can, you know, tell you everything. But instead, it means have real relationships with people that are unlike you. Cultivate multicultural, multi-ethnic relationships that really mean something to you, where you are really committed to the other person. Relationships are what lead to reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is the relational restoration of people. It's incredibly, incredibly important. We can't have justice without relationships. But then third, the C is commitment. The pursuit of racial harmony requires the commitment of all of us. We must be committed to dismantling unjust structures and laws and policies. You can do this through your career. You can do this as a parent. You can do this as a friend. And so awareness is the head, relationships are the heart, commitment is sort of the, the hands of promoting racial justice. But notice that it's, it's not a linear process. You don't move from one to another, but it's, it's an interdependent process of, of learning and, and loving and, and caring for one another. Now, what this passage points us to is, is even bigger than just justice. It's even bigger than just relationships. It's pointing us to one new humanity, oneness in Christ. It's not enough to just build a relationship or or to tell them you're sorry for all they've gone through. The goal is oneness, complete unity in Christ. And so I have another process here for you. If you can hit that next one. I know these are fancy, guys. Calm down. My friend DeMarcus is the one that shared this with me. Many of you know DeMarcus is a pastor in town. We've done a lot of different gatherings and prayer nights together. He talks about a three-step process that I think is really helpful. Reconciliation is the first step, which is the relational side of being restored to each other. Justice is the second step, which is uh, social in nature. It's social equity. And this is basically as far as the world can get. I mean, praise God if we could get to racial justice in our time. But DeMarcus is saying the biblical vision is even bigger than this. It's not just relational. It's not just social. It's spiritual. Oneness in Christ is greater than anything the world could ever offer to people. Oneness happens when when we can experience life together in the church and not even be aware of racial dynamics. That's the, that's the vision of eternity. Not that we lose what makes us distinct, but that nothing exists to divide us anymore. There is no more hostility. Now, we cannot do this in our own strength. We can't do this by just promoting diversity for the sake of diversity or for the wrong reasons. In the church, we need the eternal, transcendent resources of the gospel. Remember the verse, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, and in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is the great reminder to keep Christ at the center of everything as the cornerstone that holds everything together. Nothing else can bear the weight of the building. That's what the cornerstone is there for. But together, under the forgiveness and grace of God, through the the gift of Jesus' sacrifice, with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit among us, we are, we already are, one new humanity. That's what we are. It's definitive. That's our identity. And yet at the same time, this sacrifice of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, it's what enables us to become what we are, to become a new temple held together by the power of Jesus, a temple for his presence, a a transcendent community of transformed people, a new humanity. Let's pray.